Uh, you can go ahead and take your copy of God's Word out from the, of Matthew. Because God through him, and it's not. We see then the fall of humanity into sin. And to undo what the entrance of chapter 3, verse 3, Isaiah. It really is akin to the Old Testament. Even as we take a huge leap forward this morning, all the way over to the prophet Isaiah. It really is a continuation of what has begun in the garden and the Lord's response to that. This, this seed of the Lord, remember, he has promised. God has made us a promise, and he who promised is faithful. From the garden, we see this guy named Abraham, and we find out the promise is going to continue through him. The Lord calls this guy named Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans and says, hey, Abraham, come on, come with me. I'm going to make you a people, and through you, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. That's the Lord's promise to Abraham. He who promised is faithful, and the promise is going to come through this guy named Abraham. You continue on down a little further. Abraham eventually has children. Those children eventually, one of them is Israel, and from Israel we see 12 more children, and while the nation whose who's, uh, namesake they're named after, while Israel's passing away, he gives out blessings to his sons, and he turns to his son Judah, and he says, Judah, the scepter will not depart from Judah. Or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is comes in the obedience of the peoples, nations, belongs to him. So again, another little bit clearer. It's continuing to come down. He's promised. The Lord has promised. The Lord's promise is going to come through Abraham. The Lord's promise is going to come through Judah. He's promised. And he who's promised is Faithful. Well, you go down a little further from Judah, and eventually end up with this guy named David. King David is on the throne of Judah, and as he's on the throne in uh, Judah, there's a promise made to him. And the promise made to him is, listen up, David, there's one who's coming from your line who's going to sit on your throne and rule and reign over the people of God forever. He's going to reign in justice and in righteousness. He's going to walk in my ways I'm going to establish him forever. And so that promise is made to David. So the promise is going to come through Abraham and Judah and then, and then David. And the promise is coming and the promise is coming and the promise is coming. But when you see David sit, those of you who have been here on Wednesday night through our old sits, uh, the throne. Next year, if you'll recall, things really go south about the time David exits uh, the throne. We only make it a generation or two, and all of a sudden you've ended up with the kingdom split. You've got the northern kingdom of Israel, which has all these terrible, awful kings. And you have the southern kingdom, Judah, which is called Judah because it's dominated by this tribe of Judah. So that means that the one, they're the ones who carry on David's line, that David's kings are, are the ones who are on the line sitting uh, there. So again, he who's promised is faithful, and it's coming, but it's not coming right now. Because after this kingdom splits, you end up with... Israel, and you end up with that southern kingdom of Judah, the one dominated by David's kings. And that's where our prophet Isaiah comes in. That's where he lives. What he does is speak to these people, these kings in particular, who descended from David's line. And he comes bringing a message to these people who are in sin, a message that is largely a message of judgment. It's a message that's mingled with hope. Why don't I go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll see if we can see what we're looking for in the text. Lord. We do thank you uh, that you've given us your word. We do thank you that you've uh, made very, very clear promises to us. Your promises that you're not going to leave us in our sin, but that you're sending someone to do something about it. And so, Lord, illumine our hearts and our minds and give us eyes to see and ears to hear as we look for him in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah chapter 1 will begin in verse 1. If you've been here again on Wednesday nights, this is a little bit of review, but it won't be bad for you at all. 
the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation. A people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They've forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint from the sole of the foot even to the head. There's no soundness in it but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They're not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Thomas, can you help me out? I don't know what's going on here. You've lost me in the flow of this poetic thing that you're reading here. It's really simple. I'll bullet it down for you. The Lord's people have turned away from the Lord, and it's not working out very good for them. You see the people's experience in verse 7. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. Yeah, not going very well for the people at all. Turns out, uh, here's God's feelings on it. He's not very happy about it either. Look at verse 11. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, what to me is the multitude of your beasts? I do not delight in the blood of bulls. you this trampling of my court. Goats, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of convocations. I can't endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove uh, the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Thomas, help me out. What's going on? Yeah, this is, guys, this is judgment. Like the Lord is, the Lord is saying, I'm tired of you pretending to be obedient to me. I'm tired of you giving me lip service. I'm tired of you coming into my sanctuary, the solemn assembly where you're supposed to be worshiping me, but really your hearts are very far from me. I'm tired of that. I can't deal with it anymore. Stop bringing your vain offerings. I can't endure your solemn assembly. My soul hates these feigned celebrations that you're having. And so in response to that, I'm not, I'm not going to look at it anymore. I will hide my eyes from you, verse 15. I, my ear, like, I will not listen to you anymore. Judgment. Judgment. Judgment for the people's continued rebellion against the Lord. But Thomas, I thought you said there was a little bit of hope. There is a little bit of hope. Verse 16, there's a call for repentance. Here's what you need to do. Stop being fake. Stop putting on a show and actually turn and actually do the right thing. Do righteousness. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct this oppression. There's this call towards repentance. And then here comes your hope, quite clearly, verse 18. Because after this call to repentance, we see, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. 
Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Brothers and sisters, there's a day on the way where we're going to find a repentant people, a people who live in peace, a people who are used by the Lord to bring glory uh, to the Lord. The Lord will not utterly forsake these people. Yes, there's judgment, but yes, there's hope. Go to chapter 2. Chapter 2, let's look at verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, come. Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the Lord, the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law. Decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat up sword against nation, neither spears nor pruning hooks. Nations shall not go up. They not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, there is judgment, but there's, there's great hope. There's great hope for this repentant people. There's a day on the way in which the Lord will be exalted and his ways will be honored and his peace will reign. And not just over Israel, but over the nations, over the peoples. The Lord's promise. He's made a promise. There's one who's coming to crush the head of the serpent to undo the effects of sin. That promise is going to come through this guy named Abraham through whom all the nations of the world will be blessed. And then we're waiting on him to fulfill this promise that there's a king. We're waiting on this king who's going to come to sit on the throne of David and rule and reign over God's people with justice and righteousness. And the prophet Isaiah just wants you to know while he's coming to minister in this time that's absolutely overrun with evilness and threat, the king's coming. He's coming. He who promised is faithful, and the king is still on the way. Don't worry, that day is coming. But again, for Isaiah, that day ain't today. Isaiah has not lived to see that happen. You know what Isaiah is seeing in his lived experience is this guy named Ahaz. An evil king who's come to the throne in Judah. And when I say evil, I mean like we don't have to wonder how evil he is. The Bible is very clear. He's like the worst. Like he sacrificed his kids to pagan gods, the worst. This is the guy who Isaiah is ministering to, uh, prophesying to. Listen up, Ahaz. And so Isaiah is going to go on to confront King Ahaz uh, directly. And that's that's going to take us over to chapter 7. He begins this interaction with King Ahaz in chapter 7. You'll be very familiar with chapter 7 because chapter 7 is where we get this promise of the coming king clarified. We've already seen it cited in Matthew this morning. So if you're in Isaiah, look with me at verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. If you remember from our reading of Matthew this morning, that phrase Emmanuel means God is with us. There's one going to be born in the house of David, in the line of David, who's going to be called Emmanuel, God with us. We're waiting. Promises have been made. 
he who promises is faithful. The rest of chapter 7 is a message of direct judgment toward Ahaz and vicariously to the people. One of chapter 7, and then you get out whom they think can help them. And so that's what characterizes chapter 7. And then you get into chapter 8, and chapter 8 is, again, this continuation of judgment, like judgment is on the way, and the command to the people is to wait. So again, don't trust in Egypt. Don't trust in Syria. Don't trust in human strength. How about you guys trust in the Lord and wait on the Lord? Israel, not willing to do that. The people of God, not willing to put their faith fully in God. They won't do it. But in the middle of that, we're promised this coming king, Emmanuel. Hope. Hope in the midst of judgment. That takes us all the way down. Let's go to chapter 8, verse 21, and we'll start reading. So because these people, because the Lord's people won't trust in the Lord, but want to trust in anything else, here's what the Lord says to them. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. They will look to the earth, But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness, they've seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of the host will do this. Chapter 8. In 21, you were told judgment is coming because these people will not. They refuse to put their trust in the Lord, but want to put their trust anywhere and everywhere else. They are bound for judgment. They are headed for judgment. It says the distress and darkness and gloom of anguish await them and they will be thrust into thick darkness because they will not wait. This portion of Isaiah it's like the rest of Isaiah. It's a message of judgment. Your fingers can cool off. We're not going to turn. Oh, here's what you're about to see happen. We're going to make it to chapter 9. You can, you can, your fingers can cool off. We're not going to turn anymore. We're going to hang out in chapter 9 the rest of our time together this morning. But here comes the hope. And the hope is going to clarify the promise you just saw in 7. We're waiting. We're waiting on the Lord to fulfill his promise that there's going to be one born, this king, Emmanuel, God with us, to the line of David. And chapter 9 is about to clarify him a great, great deal. He's made a promise. And he who's promised 
is faithful. Chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. For in the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. That first phrase for you right there in chapter 9, in the first verse, it's just meant to connect you back to chapter 8. Because in chapter 8, you saw that phrase, hey, the gloom of anguish. They're headed into thick darkness. Like, this is what is coming for these people. But then chapter 9, verse 1, says the exact opposite is true in the latter times. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. The gloom of anguish awaits in judgment, but the hope is full of the fact there is coming a time where there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought contempt into the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. What do they have to do with that? Zebulun and Naphtali, what's going on with them? Maybe you remember from our time in Matthew, Matthew chapter 4. We saw this verse appear right there, Zebulun and Naphtali. There are these territories by tribal alignment that appear in the northern part of Israel. Okay, so what's the big deal? Well, the big deal, the connection that you're intended to make, and 2 Kings chapter 15 has gone way, way, way out of the way to point out to you that these territories were among the first territories to be taken into exile by the Assyrians. So when the Assyrian people, this is right before Ahaz comes to the throne, this evil king we're dealing with in Judah. When Assyria comes and gets these people and starts to take them out of the land, guess where they start? Zebulun and Naphtali. The Lord's judgment begins with the territories of Zebulun and Naphtali as they are hauled off into exile among the most domineering evil pagan peoples that the world had known to that point in time. Is it any wonder that you can call them a people who have seen great darkness? A people who've been thrust into deep darkness and have great gloom and great anguish. Of course, they're a people of darkness and gloom and anguish. But there's hope. There's hope because in the latter time, this is going to be undone. In the former time, verse 1, he has brought, the Lord has brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. But in the latter time, he's made it glorious. So the Lord's brought in the judgment. But now look, the Lord's the one who's bringing the hope. Just as he's made it dark, he's giving it hope. He's the reason that they can have hope because of what he's doing, because he's made a promise. Because he who beyond the Jordan is this place. It's, it's the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nation. Sometimes I thought we were talking to Israel. Right. Bigger than Israel. This is what Isaiah has promised you. If you can recall, back in chapter 2, there's something coming. There's a day on the way. And there's a day on the way in which the Lord will be exalted and his ways will be honored and his peace will reign. And not just over Israel, but over the nations, over the peoples. In chapter 9, you can start to connect the dots. It's got something to do with this king who's going to be born, who's going to be called Emmanuel, who's going to be God with us. And the people who've been thrust into darkness because of this king who's coming, they're going to see great light. And they're going to be among the first people to see this great light. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. 
Darkness, we've talked a lot about darkness this morning. Darkness is a metaphor. The Bible uses darkness all the time. And when the Bible is talking about darkness, it's talking about something not real pleasant. It's talking about judgment. It's talking about this contempt that you see in verse 1. It's not good. But they're going to see a great light. On them, this light is going to shine. Isaiah has rock, solid confidence that the light's going to shine. And what he means by that is there's deliverance coming. Like this judgment that you're in right now is going to pay off in this great hope that you're waiting on. Like deliverance is coming. And brothers and sisters, it's so sure that even as for Isaiah, it's in the future. He talks about it like it's already happened. He has made it glorious. A light has shone. Isaiah has rock-solid confidence that it's coming because Isaiah knows that he's promised. And Isaiah knows that he who promised is faithful. What follows? What follows? So if these people are in darkness, they see a great light. Like, what follows for them? What's their experience like with this light? Verse 3 multiplied the nation you've increased his joy they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil brothers and sisters quite clearly their experience is joy it's absolutely eaten up with joy the verse begins you've multiplied the nation Abraham the guy who this promise is like going to come into fulfillment through this guy who, who through all through all the, all the nations are going to be blessed through him. The Lord told him, I'm going to multiply this people. I'm going to give you offspring like the stars of the heaven, like the sands of the, of the seashores. And so there's joy because God is fulfilling his promise. It's joy. As with, you've increased its joy. They rejoice before you. As with joy at the harvest. As they are glad when they divide the spoil. Their experience, brothers and sisters, is from start to finish an experience of joy. Why? Why are they such a joyous people? Why would this be their experience? Verse 4. 4. The yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for fire. Brothers and sisters, the answer is that they will be a people of joy. God's people are a people of joy because the Lord will deliver his people. He's promised. He said he would, and he who promised is faithful. And Isaiah says, look, he's going to relieve the yoke. He's going to break the burden. The rod's going to be taken off. And the emphasis is on God. Like, the temptation for these people in Isaiah's day is we've got to fix it. It's up to us. We've got to strap on our battle boots. We've got to get our war garments on. And we've got to go out there and fix this thing. It's on us. Maybe we should call Egypt. Maybe we should call Syria. Maybe we should see if we can get some other world power somewhere to come and help us out because we can't trust our God. But the message for the people is you can trust your God. You will be saved if you trust your God. Deliverance will not come by your hand. Deliverance is going to come from God. 
The Lord will deliver his people. Thomas, can you give me an example? Could you tell me a Bible story about what that's like? Sure, I could. As on the day of Midian. Verse 4, that's the example cited for you there. The day of Midian. What in the world is going on there? Well, do you remember this guy named Gideon? Gideon and Midian. Gideon was written about in the book of Judges. You won't believe this, but he was one of the judges. And so in, in the book of Judges, the Lord raises up this guy named Gideon during a time where his people, Israel, are being oppressed by the Midianites. They're the big threat to Israel at that point in time. And so the Lord takes this Gideon dude and raises him up and says, Gideon, you're going to be the guy who goes and does this thing. You're going to be the guy who I use to deliver my people from these Midianites. And what the Lord wants you to catch in Gideon's story is that it wasn't really about Gideon. Because Gideon, if you go back reading Judges, had a really healthy dose of coward in him the whole time. When the Lord calls him, he says, Lord, you got the wrong guy. Uh, my family is like the weakest family in Israel, and we're, I'm like the weakest guy in that family. You don't want me. And the Lord says, no, 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 like, I want you. And, and to confirm that I want you, like, I'm going to be with you, and what I'm going to command you to do, you need to go start by tearing down these altars. Gideon, how about you go tear down the altars to these pagan gods that your family has built? Can you do that? Gideon. Gideon, again, scaredy cat. Well, nobody will know who he is, so he doesn't have altars being a scaredy consequences for his actions. So he goes and does that. Eventually tears down the altars, being a scaredy cat about it the whole time. And so then the Lord says, like, okay, here come the Midianites up against the Israelites. And the Lord says, like, right, look, getting your time to go, big dog. And Gideon says, well, look, 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 look. Let's just be sure. Like, maybe I could be misunderstanding. Maybe, like, I know I, sh I don't think I feel like the guy that should go out here to go to battle. But the Lord seems to be telling me really clearly I should be so like, let's just test it. Let's just make sure, because I don't really want to go. So if I don't have to go, I'm not going. But let's just see. Lord, what if tonight I got this big piece of wool at my house? I'm going to go lay it out. I'm going to lay it out in my yard. And I will consider going to fight the Midianites if tomorrow morning when I wake up, that piece of wool is soaked with water, but everything else around it is dry. Like if the land's dry and all the dew falls on this piece of wool, then I'll, then I'll know. You're with me, and you want me to go do something about these Midianites. So Gideon goes to sleep. He wakes up real early the next morning, and here he comes, wheeling out of the house to see if he's going to be able to get out of this thing. And he goes out to the house. The grass is dry all the way to his wool garment. He picks up his wool garment, wrings it out, and the Bible says that there was enough water came out of his wool garment to fill up a bowl. I don't know if you got that right there or not, but look, that's like more than a normal amount of dew, okay? Bunch of dew on this piece of wool. And so Gideon says, um... All right, let's just be really sure. Let's just be really sure because I really don't want to go. Like, I really don't want to do this. So maybe there's like one more opportunity. Let me just try one more time to see if I can get out of this thing. Lord, don't kill me, but here's what I want you to do tonight. If you're really sending me, what I really want you to do tonight is I'm going to lay that same piece of wool. I'll wrung it out now. It's all good and dry. I'm going to lay it back out in the yard. Tomorrow morning, if I wake up and the ground has dew on it, but the wool is dry, well, think about this. I'll think about it. Maybe, maybe you're leaving me to this. So guess what? Gideon wakes up the next morning, and he comes wheeling out of his house. This is one more last chance to get out of being obedient to the Lord. And he goes over, walks across the grass. It's as wet as it can possibly be, gets to his piece of wool, and it's dry. So Gideon, big scaredy cat Gideon, decides, okay, I'll go. 
So Gideon goes off. He takes his 32,000 Israelites with him. Here they go. And the Lord says along the way, uh, Gideon, we got too many people here, man. Because the point I'm trying to make is that this ain't about you. I'm trying to make the point it's about me. And if I deliver the Midianites into your hand with these 32,000 people, y'all might get confused and look around and say, huh, maybe we're big, strong, and we did this. So we're going to need to get rid of some of them people. So Gideon, here's what I want you to do. I want you to just have a public service announcement, and you say, everybody who's scared to be here, just raise your hand, and you go home. And when he does that, when he makes that public service announcement, 22,000 people say, yeah, we'll go home. I think we've had enough. Now, if you can do math, that left Gideon with 10,000 powerful nations, 10,000 people who are going to go up to war against this nation, powerful nation of these Midianites supported by the Amorites. And the Lord says, Gideon, we still got too many people. Like, I don't want there to be any confusion about where deliverance is coming from. Deliverance is coming from me. It's not coming from you. And so to make that really, really clear, let's thin some more of these people out. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your 10,000 people, and y'all go down to the river. And when y'all go down to the river, you tell them, hey, guys, we're just here to drink some water. So y'all just do what you got to do and drink some water. And what I want you to do, Gideon, is you take note of the people and how they drink the water. Every one of them who gets on their knees and drinks the water like that, set them in one pile. And then you take note of everybody who reaches down and picks it up with their hands and drinks out of their hands. And you put them people in, in another pile. And so Gideon does that. He takes careful, very careful care to see who's doing what, how they're drinking this water. And so by the time that little event is over, you're left with 9,700 people. That's 9,700 out of your 10,000 people who were in one group who've knelt down to drink the water. Which leaves you with, again, if you're one of those math people, 300 people who drank water out of their hands. And the Lord says, Gideon, send the 9,700 people home. I don't need them. You and these 300 people, I'm going to use you and these 300 people to deliver the nation of Israel out of the hand of their enemies. They're big, strong powerful pagan enemies so that it will be very clear to you and to the nation and to everybody else. This is not about your ability to save yourself. It's about my ability to deliver you. I won't elaborate any further on the story besides to say that the Lord does deliver those people. Uh, He does deliver the Israelites from the Midianites with only these uh, 300 people. And the moral of this story for you here in the book of Isaiah is that, hey, look, you can trust God. When I say something like, I'm going to deliver my people, you can trust me. And so the command then in verse 5 is, look, and this is coming to a people who are facing war, who are facing threats, who are under oppression from their enemies. Here's what y'all might as well do. You might as well take your boots, and you might as well take your war garments, and you might as well go out and burn them in the fire, because you're not going to need them. You will not need them. This is not your deliverance that you need is not going to come from you. It's not going to come from your ability to deliver yourself. No, it's going to come from me. And so you might as well just take your war gear out back and burn it. Burn it as fuel for the fire. 
Deliverance that God is working right here, right now, in the book of Isaiah, that he is prophesying to us, it's bigger than any military action is going to be able to accomplish. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Brothers and sisters, we're, we're waiting. We're waiting, and we've been promised, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, we've been promised there's one coming. There's this one coming whose name's Emmanuel, the one coming who's going to be God with us, a child. We're waiting on a child. The virgin's going to conceive and bear a son. We're waiting on a child. So he's going to be born, which is normal, right? People are born. But the son's going to be given. This Emmanuel, this king we need, this God with us king we need, is very literally God's gift. Not just born, but he's going to be given. And even as he's given, the government is on his shoulder. He has authority. He intrinsically has authority. It's, it's in him. It's who he is. This is the one coming, the king coming, the Emmanuel who's coming, the one who's going to come to crush the head of the serpent in the line of Abraham, in the line of David, to sit on the throne of, over God's people and rule and reign forever and ever He's coming. And as he comes, all power rests on him. The government is on him. Authority is in him. And you don't just have to take my word for it. What, look at his name. Look at what they call him. I know it might not mean a lot these days, but back in these days, names meant a lot. Like names said something about who somebody was. So what are, what are we going to call him? His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. That word for wonderful there carries the connotation of something supernatural, something divine. This is more than mortal wisdom. This is more than a wise sage. Supernatural wisdom. Supernatural guidance. It's the king's job to give counsel. Kings are supposed to counsel in these days. But and thank the Lord that there's going to be supernatural wisdom in this king who's coming. Because the kings of those days, no matter how wise they are, always manage to blow it. Not so with this king. This is not mortal wisdom. He's wonderful counsel. Supernatural counsel. What else do they call him? Well, he's, he's mighty God. I assume I don't have to explain that very much. It just, it just means what it says. Like he's mighty God. He is the Lord. And in chapter 10, if you don't believe me, like the same phrase is going to be used explicitly for Yahweh. So don't miss it. Like we're saying that he is God. This king who's coming, this deliverance God has promised is coming through none other than God himself. Why is this such an important passage? Why would we go to this passage so often. Why would people make so much of this passage? Why would a local church somehow, somewhere put banners up around the wall that had this passage on it? Because this is the news flash 
that we've been waiting on all through the Old Testament as we've been looking and saying, okay, we're waiting on this serpent slayer to come. We're waiting on someone to come from the line of Abraham to bless all the nations. We're waiting on somebody to come from the line of David who's going to rule and reign over God's people forever and ever and ever. Who's that going to be? 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 This is the first time the answer has explicitly been God. He's God. It's not, it's not a messenger. It's not someone less than God. No, God. God is the one who's coming to fulfill his promise to his people. He who's promised is faithful, and he's going to come to make good on it. He's going to be called Wonderful Counselor. He is Mighty God. He is Everlasting Father, Eternal. From forever into forever. Father, he's, he's tender. Meant to hand you the notion that he's, he's not just this one who's going to come and rule in authority. He's also the one who's going to come in tenderness towards his people. To care for his people. A bruised reed, he, he won't break. A smoldering wick, he won't put out. He has all authority, yet he's tender. And then the, this last title given... And again, just remember who this is given to. Of people who are facing war. People who are waiting on the Assyrians to walk in any day. People who are tempted to trust in themselves and in Egypt and in Syria because they just know they're going to get physically demolished in a war. He is the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace promised to a war-torn people. He's the Prince of Peace. Peace peace resides and reigns in him and comes to pass in him. Which if you're paying pretty close attention should help you connect some dots. Because chapter 2 said, in the latter days, they're going to beat their swords in the plowshare. All the nations are going to stream to God's people. All the nations are going to look to Jerusalem, all the nations, that, yeah, 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 you're in judgment now. But in the latter times, look what's coming. There's a day on the way in which the Lord will be exalted and his ways will be honored and his peace will reign. And not just over Israel, but over the nation, over the people. And brothers and sisters, that is absolutely all totally wrapped up in this child. And the one who's going to be born, Emmanuel, God with us, mighty God. It's wrapped up in him. It hangs on him. The Lord has promised, and the Lord's faithfulness to his promise comes through this child. His government, it's always going to increase. His peace, it will never end. On the throne of David, he will reign, and over his kingdom, he will establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever. More The zeal of the Lord of the host will do this. This is everything God has promised us all Old Testament long, wrapped up in one very clear, very explicit package. There's one coming. He's going to come from the line of Abraham. He's going to come from the line of David. He's going to sit on the throne and rule and reign over God's people forever. He will be a child who is born. He will be this child who is given. And he is God himself. You've got that very clearly all the way back in Isaiah chapter 9. Brothers and sisters, he's promised. And he who promised is faithful. Christmas is coming. 
maybe an appropriate text this morning for us to remind ourselves that this season that we celebrate is formally called Advent. That's what the church has historically called it. Advent means the season of arrival. And in the season of Advent, we're not just aware of the fact that uh, Jesus is coming once. We're aware of the fact Jesus is coming twice. Because this text says, we're still waiting on this, that he's the Prince of Peace. And I've said multiple times this morning that there's a day on the way where God's rule and reign is going to be over all people, over all nations, and it will be completely defined by peace. And you look around and you say, huh, we're not there yet. No, of course we're not there yet. Jesus in his first coming has not universally installed that. He's made a way for me and you right now to be a part of God's kingdom by graciously receiving his kingship over us, but but that's not the full and final promise. No, there's a day on the way in which the Lord will be exalted and his ways will be honored and his peace will reign, and that's not just over Israel. It's over the peoples. It's over the nations. There weren't any contingencies in what I just said. There's a day on the way where it's going to happen. The rule of God will exist over everyone fully and finally, and peace will be established. There's no way around it. When Jesus returns, God will be glorified. Not a back door there. So that message, that awareness of this coming, this the second coming, it does two things. Creates a sense of judgment, and it creates a sense of hope. If you're the type of person who has graciously submitted yourself to the Lord's kingship, then you can be a person of great hope. Because the Lord will deliver his people. But if you've decided to be your own king, be aware of judgment. Because the Lord will establish his rule and reign over all peoples in justice and in righteousness. Which means, if you have not come to the Father through Jesus Christ the Son, and his blood has not been applied to your soul by the person and work of the Holy Spirit, you will be judged. It's a message of great hope. Because you can be delivered by God's deliverance. But it's a message of great fear. Because if you haven't been delivered... God's justice will be poured out on you. There's this uh, song I heard one time. It said, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie above thy deep and dreamless sleep. The silent stars go by. Yet in the dark, dark streets shineth the everlasting light. That's what we've read about this morning. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Brothers and sisters, Christmas is coming. And Christ is coming again. The world and everything in it will be subject to his reign. He will justly and righteously establish his peace and all rebellion shall cease. If you've submitted to him, you can have great hope. If you're your own king, You should have great fear. Would you pray with me? Lord, we again just thank you for your word. uh, And we thank you that you 
care about us enough to be truthful with us. As you you reveal yourself to us, you reveal yourself as you really are. You are truth and you cannot lie. And so, Lord, we thank you that you've told us that there's judgment for our rebellion against you. We thank you, Lord, that you've told us that we can have hope if we put our trust in you. Lord, I pray right now this morning for everyone in this room, you would make us a people who look to you for deliverance, who put our hope and our trust in you and not in ourselves. Lord, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you that this one whom we've been waiting on has come. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you not just that he's come and inaugurated the kingdom of God and made a way for us to be in it. We thank you that he's coming again. We thank you that he's coming again to rule and reign over all nations and all peoples and establish peace. Lord, we pray he'd come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, We'll have a song of response this morning. I'll be down front worshiping with you. If there's anything you'd like to talk to me with or, or talk to me about or pray with me with, you're welcome to do that.